Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. Today, we are recording episode 35, and I'm very proud to start this podcast since the beginning of this year, 2022. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to introduce my book, which is called A Gift from Adversity, the same title as my podcast. And A Gift from Adversity's subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. I have experienced all of these adversities growing up in Japan, and I suffered a lot of different things, including PTSD, panic attack, mental health issues, which was never really addressed. After I published my book, I've gotten a lot of people contact me and resonated with my experiences and said they were also the victim of sexual abuse or homelessness. And some people, I was very shocked that to learn they are also the survivor. And I felt very compelled to create a safe platform in the social media setting where people can discuss openly about the adversity and tools that they use to overcome and a gift that came from the adversity. So today we have Avery Thatcher from Canada joining us and I'm very excited to have her tonight. Hi, Avery. Hi, Jury. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being a part of A Gift from Adversity. So can you tell our audience your name and what you do and your social media and a website? Yes, absolutely. So my name is Avery Thatcher. I am a former ICU nurse and now I help people prevent burnout and reverse the negative health effects of stress. And so you can find me on social media and my website is at Becoming Avery. And then the website's becomingavery.com. Great. And in what part of Canada are you located? Uh, I'm in Alberta, Canada. So if you're from the U.S., we're north of Montana, really close to the Rocky Mountains. And how is it like over there? Uh, well, it snowed this morning. So, you know, but we, we get snow until beginning of June. So we, we know we're not done with winter yet. So you have a long, long winter? We do have a very long winter. It kind of goes from October until the end of May. But I really like snow, so I am quite happy. <laughs> and do you do skiing and stuff, snow activities? Yes, I like, I like going out hiking. And my dog just loves snow. He'll go and make little dog snow angels and just eat it all and play in it. It's very sweet. So there's so many things to enjoy about snow. And have you been to America? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. Uh, a number of different places kind of really scattered around. It's a very big country, but yes. Great. Well, Avery, such a pleasure meeting you. And thank you so much for sharing, willing to share your experience and adversity. So let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience, what was your adversity? So my original name that I was born with was not Avery. 
I was born Heather and I grew up in a very analytical household as a highly emotional person. And so I felt a lot of disconnect from my emotions. I shoved down a lot of emotions and really didn't feel like myself for a very long time. And then I was working in an ICU as a registered nurse. I had been doing that for about a decade. And then uh, Christmas morning on in uh, the no, 2018, I was looking at my charge nurse and she said, oh, Heather, you do not look well. I'll mark you down as sick tonight. Take some time, recover. And then I went home and I slept for 20 hours and I slept for 20 hours the next day and the day after that. And overnight, I went from being very active, having full-time job, working full-time 12-hour shift work, having this identity as being a high achiever to barely being able to function. And this doctor that I went to see, she noticed that I had a growth on the side of my neck. And so we looked into that. I had a thyroid mass. I had other issues come up. I had some surgeries, a lot of painful experiences over that year. And then at the end of 2019, I finally got my diagnosis, but there was no cure for it. So overnight, my life completely changed and I no longer knew who I was. I really disconnected from life because I was so wrapped up in my identity being a nurse. And then when the pandemic hit, in other cases with when SARS came over to North America with H1N1, I was working in the ICU. So when the pandemic hit, I was like, what do I do? I, I can't work in the hospital. I'm physically unable to do that. So what do I do? I had so much PTSD flare ups with that. There was awful dreams of, you know, my colleagues asking for help, Heather, where are you? And I just felt like, so stuck and eventually what changed is when i chatted with my my therapist and my husband about it and i was like i don't think i'm heather anymore i don't feel like that person and so i had to make a decision to be able to feel like myself again and be at home in my body and that was a very challenging time but a lot of good came out of it so let's dive back into 2018, where you had crisis. You said you slept 20 hours. Yeah, 20 hours a day. It was like I could barely keep my eyes open. It was hard to convince myself to get up and get a drink of water. Every motion needed a pep talk. And there was just so much fear because nobody really knew what was happening. I had a lot of mixed symptoms that all appeared at the same time. They could be related to the thyroid mass? Was it cancer? Was it not cancer? Then there was these other things which I was being investigated for like MS and lupus and a whole host of other diseases. And we weren't really sure where that was going, what was happening. There was a lot of things that just felt so scary, especially being from the medical side of things, you know, going into an operating room and normally being one of the people there with scrubs on managing machines. And I'm just like, oh, that table's for me. I lie down on the table today. And it's just so different. So prior to this um, incident or condition that you experienced in 2018, did you have anything leading up to it? 
it kind of came out of the blue. I was working in a very high stress environment um, that didn't feel very supportive. So I wonder if some of that emotional experience might have triggered a lot of what happened. But no, it really came out of the blue. I had no idea it was coming and it was just literally overnight. My life changed. I lost so much. And how old were you when that happened exactly? Oh, that's a good question. I only know how old I am because when I go to a doctor's office, they tell me. Uh, I think I was about 35. It was 35. Okay. So you were um, kind of at the height of your career. Mm -hmm. I see a nurse and then suddenly you had kind of a breakdown or burnout and then you just kind of went from really function high function nurse to what happened right mm -hmm, exactly so much of what I identified as was no longer available to me being a nurse being active visiting with friends uh going on long walks with my dog all of these things were no longer accessible and so it just like everything got taken away not everything but a lot of things got taken away overnight and then what did your family members or friends said to you around that time so for me because of my childhood and adolescence, I had become very hyper-independent and it was very hard for me to let people in. Uh, my husband and I had been married for three months before this happened. And uh, for the first little while, he couldn't come with me to the doctor's appointments. I just couldn't handle the stress of having to worry about him too. And then eventually he could drive me to them, but he had to wait in the car. And then he could come in and wait in the waiting room. And finally he was able to get into the, the doctor's office about nine months later. But it just, I, I didn't know how to let other people support me. So it was actually a very lonely experience, but a lonely experience of my own doing because I didn't know how to let people in. When you look back your adolescence and childhood, maybe you just mentioned something about like independent like what happened like why were you so like high function maybe or <laughs> definitely some high functioning anxiety happening in there for sure uh i think it was just a lot of me denying myself in order to fit in and be accepted there was a lot of disconnect a lot of challenge with understanding what it means to be a highly emotional person not many people that I knew growing up had the level of emotional intelligence that's required to be able to help a highly sensitive child. So it was just, I had to learn how to do all of that on my own. And it was always safer to process my emotions separately than to process them in front of other people because they didn't understand or they told me it was wrong. So I knew that I had to keep that part separate. Why did they say you were wrong? because I think it made them uncomfortable. I think people who aren't as comfortable with emotions, when they see somebody else so freely experiencing them, it challenges their comfort. It challenges their feeling of safety because we all have inner protective mechanisms that kick in when we see something unusual happening. And so some of us know how to comfort that part of us that has that fear, 
but not everybody does. So that's a part of the personal development experience that I think we all need to go through just for our evolution as humans, but not everybody is able to get into that space. And how were you communicating um, about it with your parents growing up? Uh, communicating about mm -hmm. the emotional side? Yeah, like, you know, were you explaining all the struggles that you had when you were adolescents, like with your parents? It your wasn't parents? acceptable. It was not safe to do so. And it just, again, I think it just challenged them to have somebody feel so deeply is just a, a lot for people that aren't comfortable with emotions to manage. So I think that they did their best. I truly do. But I just don't think that somebody that doesn't connect with their own emotions can't support somebody else that needs to. So do you think that part of it that you felt unsupported growing up um, and not have much of understanding and support maybe led to 2018 um, breakdown or no? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think all of my my childhood and adolescent experiences prepared me to handle the experience of 2018 as best as possible. It was like all of those things were training me for this moment because I don't believe that I would have coped nearly as well if I hadn't had all those skills built up. So as a nurse that you've seen, I see a nurse, you've seen so many things um, that happen to the human beings. And then now you are on the other side. Do you think the knowledge that you had helped you to get through it or not really? Oh, I think it made it worse because especially when other diagnoses were getting thrown around, I knew what that meant. I knew the full impact of what that would look like, longevity-wise, symptom-wise, all of the different things. So when things like, um, like for example, I all of a sudden de developed migraines out of nowhere and my migraines show up like I'm having a stroke. So all of a sudden one day, my entire left side went numb. I struggled to speak. I lost vision in my left eye. And I was like, okay. Or how about a stroke? So I decided to go to the emergency room, of course, but it was like trying to be the ICU nurse personality that can disconnect from fear, but still in my brain, it was like, okay, you're going to now also be recovering from a stroke. What's that going to look like? And you just go down all the different ways. Because part of what makes a good ICU nurse good is that we plan for all the different contingencies that could possibly happen. So immediately your brain starts going all kinds of ways. So yeah, I feel like it made it harder because I think I knew too much. Yes. Um, I had a medical doctor come on my show and then she was diagnosed with pretty heavy disease. And then um, she said it made it worse knowing that who impact of what would have happened to her, but would, would like seeing other cases that, if people don't know the diagnosis well, that people can just have hope. But mm -hmm. in her case, there was no hope because she's seen so many cases that didn't survive. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, she said pretty much the same thing that you said. It made her experience worse or more reality. The people, mm-hmm. you can't just fake it. No, no. You can be very objective, but you can't necessarily have the same degree of hope, like you said, as somebody that wouldn't know. So this happened in 2018 and today 2022. So were you, did you say from 2018, your adversity was getting worse? Yeah, so it definitely, I think I noticed that I moved through the stages of grief and because of my past, I also, because anger wasn't a safe emotion to feel or express, I avoided that part. But definitely in the beginning, there was a lot of denial. There was a lot of, yeah, it's okay. I'll get better. I'll be able to go back to work. It'll be fine. Um, And then slowly as the months dragged on and things were getting worse or things were not changing. And I was really hopeful that after the mass on my thyroid was removed, that I would feel better and it didn't make a difference. So it was just like lots of little losses along the way. And so finally at the end of 2019, I think it really hit me that things are never going to be able to go back to the way things were, that I have to start over and I have to figure out what that looks like. And so that's one of the things that we'll be talking about when we get into the tool side of things. But there was a lot of things which I did in that, that time frame that allowed me to be able to have that fresh start that I needed. So did you get the final diagnosis? What happened to you? Mm-hmm, I did. So um, I seemed to get very lucky and I had a number of things appear at the same time, but they all were separate, which confused everybody while they were trying to diagnose me. But uh, if the main one that's lasted is called myalgic encephalomyelitis. And it's a chronic illness that leads to a permanent disability. So this is me. I get to carry this friend with me wherever I go. That was very quick. Can you say a little bit slower? Yes, absolutely. It's called myalgic encephalomyelitis. That is a mouthful. It sure is. It sure is. And so basically what it means is that I always feel like I have the flu. My brain can be really on it, or it can be like I'm in a fog and like somebody's put a mixer in my brain and mushed everything up. Uh, I can forget simple words like washing machine or cutting board. So my husband's getting very good at charades because this is washing machine and he knows what that means. So there's just different strategies that you use to overcome that. Um, I have joint pain that moves around. It's unpredictable. Um, I get a sore throat. I'm losing my voice, which apparently is very common with this. And it's been frustrating for me. And I'm working to maintain the voice that I still have because I am also a podcaster. I also teach online and public speaking is part of my work. So it's just learning to manage and maintain as this disability continues. So when you got the final diagnosis, um, did it take a long time to get to where the final diagnosis came? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the final diagnosis came in the middle of September of 2019. So it was almost a year. 
And even then it was like, we think it's this, but we're gonna need more time to confirm because it could still be a couple of other things. So now it is for sure confirmed. That is what I have, but yes, it did take some time. And do you have anybody who has the same condition or maybe Facebook group? Mm-hmm. So there are Facebook groups and it can be helpful, but um, depending on where people are in their grief healing journey, Facebook groups especially can keep you kind of percolating in the, the beginning of that experience. You know, the frustration, the grief, the loss, the the denial, the bargaining, trying to find this miracle cure, everybody suggesting something new. So uh, I have found a good Facebook group for me that people have moved past that part of their healing journey a little bit. But yeah, depending on where you're at in your journey, some of the Facebook groups can keep you stuck. I see. So Avery, first of all, thank you so much for sharing your adversity and the story and it's very heartbreaking that to hear that suddenly this happened and then you know now you have this condition that you have to face and then you have to deal with um so let's actually move on to the next question which is the tools that you used to overcome or you are using to overcome this uh, adversity can you share with us about the absolutely tools. absolutely so one of the early things which i integrated and i was already teaching this and showing other people how to do this as well but it's a self-compassion script and so it's something that uh really simulates what you would say to a friend because we've really lost our ability to be compassionate towards ourselves very early on especially as women this gets trained out of us so we have to learn how to build it back up. And so a self-compassion script is a really good way to do that. And there's three parts of a self-compassion script. The first is validating how you're feeling without trying to change anything. The next there's comfort. And then the last piece is giving yourself some kind of plan. And so when I was uh, early in 2019, when we still didn't really know if the thyroid mass was causing all the problems, if it was cancer, all these different things, I went to go get it biopsied. Uh, which means that they were sticking a very large needle into my neck multiple times to try and get like a good sample out. And it was quite painful. And in that moment, I just said to myself, yes, this hurts. Yes, this is scary. It's okay to be scared, but you can get through this moment by breathing and you can get through this next moment by breathing. And I just coached myself through the entire experience. And so self-compassion scripts were a very important part of the early phases of this. And then it continues to be a really important tool for me today. Because for example, this morning, for reasons unbeknownst to me, I woke up with a lot more pain, a lot more of the flu feeling and almost no energy. So I was just like, okay, yeah, you had plans for today. You're kind of frustrated you don't get to do all of those things, but you're gonna be okay. You can take it one moment at a time. You can see what you're up for. And just remember you wanna rest because you've got this really cool interview tonight. So you wanna make sure that you're prepared for that. So it was just those little things that you circle through over and over. So that was one of the tools with self-compassion scripts. 
before you move on to another tool, I want to um, go over it. So validating is the first step. And then what's the next one again? The next step is to comfort because oh. that's where we often skip. We just say, yeah, it's kind of scary. Ugh, just push those feelings down. But we actually need to experience those feelings in order to let them go. Because otherwise they get trapped in our body. The chemicals alter uh, our chemical experience and our hormonal experience in our body. So we need to make sure that we process them. And then the last step is to give yourself a plan. And so sometimes the plan could be, you know, down the road, you could be thinking far ahead, or sometimes like for that moment when I was getting my neck biopsy, it was literally breath to breath, moment to moment. So those are the three components, validation, comfort, and a plan. So in many situations that when we have, say, panic attack, and, you know, the PTSD flashback, I've experienced the whole shebang of it for like good 20 years, 30 years, and nobody really um, knew what to do. No, I didn't know what to do. If I had this tool, I would maybe have said, yes, you are having, validating wise, yes, you're having panic attack. How would you say the comfort part? So I also, at the beginning of 2021, all of a sudden out of the blue started experiencing panic attacks three or four times daily. And I was having much more of my PTSD triggered as well. And I just never identified as an anxious person before. And so these absolutely still played a role, these self-compassion scripts, because when I was having the panic attack, I realized that when I stopped trying to resist it, they ended faster. So once I noticed that, then that's how my self-compassion script went. Absolutely, you feel like you're about to die. You can't breathe, you can't catch your breath, but it'll be over soon. You will survive through this. You can do this. Just keep breathing. And right. that was it. That's how I coached myself through buckets of panic attacks before we figured out what that part of my new puzzle was. Well, my question is though, like validating, comforting is kind of similar. So how do you validate after, so validating is say, okay, you are having panic attack right now, but what, how do you comfort yourself? Like, you know, you okay, doing okay kind of thing. Yeah, and in that moment, you don't feel like you're doing okay. So even if you were to tell yourself that, you probably wouldn't believe it, but you could remind yourself that you've survived every single one of your panic attacks so far, and this one's gonna be the same. So it's just, validating that yes it's really scary and you do feel like you are you can't breathe and that you're going to die but comforting yourself knowing that this is a normal part of the human experience and you're going to make it through so in this moment Got just it. allow it to pass and then you give yourself a plan so maybe i'll get ice cream after panic attacks over yeah absolutely and then in that moment though you can still say things to yourself like just hold space for this stop don't resist it allow it to move through because when you allow the emotion to leave it goes faster there's a lot of research around that that when we can let go of the resistance of the anxiety that we're feeling it moves through faster and that's one of the the things that's made the biggest difference for me with um, uh, in 2021, at the beginning of it, with all these panic attacks starting, there was also a lot of other 
anxiety driven thoughts that came around. And then I was diagnosed with OCD on top of everything else. So, um, yeah, the compassion scripts can work really well when managing anxiety. So Avery, how is name change? How is it? How did it help you? Was that one of the tool? Great question. So when I was Heather still, I was still trying to be the Heather that I knew. I was still trying to figure out, okay, so like I used to be very active. I used to go rock climbing all the time. How can I get back to that? Because that was really important to me. Trying to reconcile the fact that I probably wouldn't work in a hospital again, but how can I get back to some of these other things? And it just kept proving to be impossible, really. So eventually I realized that when I heard my name, when I heard somebody say Heather, when I had to write it down, signing off an email or something, it triggered a lot within me. I felt the panic start to come up and I was like, I just don't identify as that person anymore. And so, yeah, I talked with my husband, I talked with my therapist about it and we, I basically presented to them and I said like, Hey, I think I'm going to change my name because I don't feel like Heather. And I went through a bunch of baby name blogs. I found Avery and it was the only one that felt right. And then when I decided on Avery and I told it to the couple of important people in my life, I felt at home in my body again. I no longer felt like I had lost as much as I had. I now felt at home. Like I had a connection to my purpose again. So it just leveled out a lot of emotion that was really troubling for a while and just allowed me to be who I am and look forward from here rather than having that big anchor of the past holding on to me. That is very interesting because name is something that's very powerful and they have frequency and people, you know, call your name and they identify you as that person. And I have like similar experience that say my perpetrator was my father. And then I did not like the last name, like Japanese last name. And I just didn't want to associate with him. So when I first got married, I changed my last name. But then when I became a citizen, I changed it to love, which is, I think, seventh popular last name. But I just loved the frequency to it. And then I felt empowered and I felt the name change process when I became citizen gave me a different leverage of confidence and the new life mm-hmm. that I experience. And you know, I'm not recommending anyone, like everyone, to you know try to change their names. But I think somehow, like I was feeling the weight of the abuse carrying my father's last name, mm-hmm. and when I changed it. Uh, especially to love after I became a citizen, I felt a lot of weight was shifted. And also love is cute last name that I've gotten like a lot of compliments and is it is it your real legal name? And um had really good conversation around love and mm-hmm. it it just um people who has like trauma, like 
I like this part of um, tools because we, as a survivor of diversity, which is becoming universal language, no matter where, what part of the world you are in, that people who don't understand the level of adversity or trauma that we carry, they just say, oh, just get a therapist, it's gonna be okay. But it's not that simple. No. And the tools that each one of the guests who came to my show shared are very, very, very different. And in your case, different definitely different too so what else so you have self-compassion script which is validating comforting and then giving yourself a plan and you changed your name and then maybe started a brand new life um what else have you used that worked so the most significant piece aside from changing my name and i don't think i would have been ready to change my name if i hadn't done this first it was to allow myself to get angry. And I remember the moment when I did it because I, I run a group coaching program and every time I run it, I always go through it again. It's about uncovering different layers of your trauma onion. So you just keep digging in and finding something new that you want to continue to work on. So every time I do it, I always do it with my the group that I run it with. And so I was there doing my, it's I call it the grief and anger letter. And so I was writing it towards my illness and so initially it was just like talking about it and just talking about everything that i've lost and then all of a sudden i got angry and then i was just like furiously writing on my keyboard journaling it out and just letting all of the anger and the hurt just come out and it was just like this floodgate had opened and it was just flying out of me and then it just clicked all of a sudden that this part of me, this part of me with this diagnosis, the part of me that's caused so much pain and loss, it deserves just as much love as the rest of me. And so once I was able to get that anger out of the way, then I was able to hold that part of me and just really offer it the love of, because it was hurt too. And I was trying to alienate myself from it. And so it was really allowing the anger to move through so that I could truly accept and love all corners of myself. That I think was the most impactful thing. So let's talk about that a little bit because when I was going through sexual abuse and trauma, I completely separated the emotion and the event. And that's throughout my life that something happens i just completely mute myself from the anger or any frustration screaming nothing i just feel nothing and then i just couldn't like connect the reaction that normal people get like right away and it manifests to anxiety and then not being able to eat sleep um for like a week and then my counselor told me that a lot of people who experience the trauma, this is an event and this is an emotion. There's like a huge gap in between. And then the goal is to connect them. So for instance, something happens and somebody assault me and I don't recognize as an assault. And I'll tell people and I said, Jerry, that's an assault. 
like, why are you okay? And then that's kind of how I survived. So I never mm-hmm. had the opportunity to let my anger come out. So how did you feel when the anger came out and how did it manifest? Yeah, so a lot of what you were saying, I definitely relate to because I also distanced myself so much from my emotions growing up that I, looking back now, it's kind of sad to know how much I tolerated that I shouldn't have how much I accepted as normal because I denied myself the ability to feel all emotions, even the ones that were triggering me of red flags. And so anger was an emotion that I would always shut down. Anytime there was this little glimpse of anger, I was like, no, I don't, I don't get angry. That's what I would say all the time. I don't get angry. I don't get offended. If you want to offend me, you're going to have to let me know that's what you're trying to do. So absolutely. It was, it was a big hurdle. And so I just, I had watched a lecture by Lamarod Owens, and he talks about love and rage and how those are both a similar experience, but one is socially accepted and one is not. And so from that moment, I was like, when I write my grief letter, I wonder if I allow the anger through, because usually it bubbles up a little bit and I'm just like, oh no. Oh, no, that's anger. It should stay away. But this time, I because I had also equated so much of my journey to the grief journey, I knew that anger had to be that part. And I had seen a lot of grief over my course as an ICU nurse. And so you know that anger is an important part of that experience. So I allowed myself to do that. And absolutely, it was scary in the moment. But then once... I started expressing that in a way that felt safe to me through journaling. It felt so healing. After the initial fear, it just felt so healing, like this wash of cold water just flowed through me and just cooled down all that anger and allowed it to express itself in a safe way. It is a lot of information that probably not some people understand the magnitude of it. We were talking about adversity and the tools that we use to overcome. And our guest Avery is sharing about emotional disconnect to the event that we mask ourselves and people just don't understand how dangerous that can be mm-hmm. and i liked how what you said about love and rage and one is accepted in our society one is not why do you think is that i think because people want to experience emotion when it feels good but when we start to dislike what we're feeling We want to get rid of that. And then you look at anger and how it's portrayed in the media and anger is shown in cases of war, in cases of criminal activity, in cases of domestic violence. It's not ever, anger is never shown as a healthy emotion. And as we grow up, I know very few people that had anger demonstrated to them in a healthy way. 
So because for so long, society is avoiding feeling the uncomfortable emotions, we've actually lost our ability to feel them safely and healthfully. So it's just something that we have to really learn how to do again. It's very interesting. How did you describe some people who can demonstrate anger in a healthy way? So there's lots of ways that you can experience anger in a healthy way. It's just that, again, we're not shown that as much. Uh, anger is an emotion that is just as valid as other emotions, but anger especially is an umbrella emotion. So anger is the reaction that we feel, but underneath that umbrella is the actual driver of that. So uh, one of the clearest examples that I use is if I were to tell you a secret jury and then you go out and tell it to somebody else and I hear this other person talking about it, I'm going to be angry at you for sharing my secret. But truly, I'm embarrassed that this other person knew something which I didn't want them to know. So anger, once we understand what's actually driving it, we can process that emotion. And then the anger isn't this overpowering experience. It's a side effect of the true emotion underneath it. Does that make sense? It, yeah, it does make sense. But I was more, so that's more analytic of why the anger happens. But to express anger in a healthy way, I think it's very interesting perspective. So for instance, like say, instead of like yelling at somebody and then saying like, oh, you know, and swear at them or that rage versus maybe they calmly say, hey, I'm angry at you. Why did you do that? Like just that word of expression that you are angry without yelling and without cursing, mm -hmm. that could be in a healthy way. Hey, what you did was wrong and I'm angry at you. And you don't have to like go like, like 10 outrage versed, I mean, like yelling in full blown of that. Mm -hmm. And it takes people some time to learn how to do that. It's not always, it's almost never an instinct for us to be able to be like, oh, I am angry rather than being like just swept up in that emotion. And so a lot of our emotions, I, I experience them as a freight train. So it's like I get the emotional trigger and anger, let's say, just like zips away from the train platform. And I'm like hanging on to the outside being like, oh, it's just zipping down the field. But what we need to do is learn how to disconnect and leave ourselves on the platform so we can see like, oh, the train is zipping away. I did experience anger, but I'm still in control of this situation. And so you still need to process that anger. And so sometimes that's what needs to happen first. So when we experience that anger to be able to say, hey, uh, I'm triggered right now. I need some time to be able to allow this emotion to settle before we continue talking. I will come back. And then you go and do something that helps you relieve your anger. And often that means that you have to process it. So screaming into a pillow or uh, journaling. Journaling works very well for me because screaming into a pillow still seems too violent for me. Um, but journaling and still allowing myself to say what I need to say out, but not necessarily need to say to that person. 
So then it allows me to come back and have that level conversation like you were mentioning. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like um, I've never thought about love and rage and then the love is accepted and then rage is not accepted, but then they are both valid emotions as a range of human side. And then we are very multidimensional animal that like, you know, we just don't feel happy all the time mm -hmm. but it's okay absolutely yeah and i think for me seeing emotions as information rather than a good or bad positive or negative experience really helps to helps with that disconnect because then i can feel anger or jealousy or uh, frustration or any kind of typically negative emotion and i can see like oh that's information. So I'm feeling angry. What's underneath that? What caused that anger? Do I need to set a boundary? Is this some kind of flag for me to do something about this? Uh, for jealousy, is that because I need to learn a new skill? Because this person has the ability to do something that I don't know how to do yet. So all emotions can be seen as information instead of labeling them as good or bad. It's very interesting uh, when I got divorced and then I got very angry and then I got very frustrated. I didn't know what to do. I was crying. And then one of my friends told me, Julie, just think it as a business transaction. Don't put emotion to it. Just disengage and just, you know, do the things that you have to do and then keep moving on. And so sometimes connecting with emotion can ruin your day. Sometimes disconnecting and then just thinking as kind of a perspective and then in a healthy way that mm -hmm. can move your day forward that can be one of the tools mm -hmm. absolutely yes is there anything else you want to add on to what you shared with us so the only thing which i would add is to select your support system and remind yourself to let them in and so I know that earlier I said that that was very challenging for me and it still is challenging. There are still things that uh, I experience a lot on my own. And then when I share it with my husband or the close friends that I have chosen to be able to be into this part of my life, they're just like, oh my gosh, you've been carrying that this long and you haven't said anything. So it's just reminding yourself that there are people in your life that will not judge you when you share your experiences and that we are not meant to carry all of our burdens alone. It, although it may seem scary in the moment, it is definitely worth letting people in to help you carry that burden, the right people. I cannot agree with you more of that. And then I feel very lucky to have friends who I chose and I feel safe to confine my personal problems or incident or whatever and i feel that sometimes you know sharing your adversity can bring new friends and then can make you feel a new bonding and building a good rapport with human being and you being vulnerable might help open the door of the conversation that they could not have in the past because you decided to open the door like a Pandora's box then mm -hmm. you know, 
people started to feel safe around you and then feel it's okay to share. Absolutely. So let's move on to the last question, which is a gift that came from your adversity. So would you share what was your gift that came from this adversity? So for me, the biggest gift was also my biggest fear. And that, like we've been kind of weaving throughout this whole thing, is letting people in. So I can actually say now that I have a support system, whereas before, I don't think I did because I would support them, but I didn't know how to allow them to support me. So I think for me, that is the biggest gift that I've received. My ability to be vulnerable and trust in other people. It's been such a wonderful experience. Scary as all get out, but wonderful at the same time. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And everything that you said in this show is really valuable to me and to our audience and the people who might be listening, who might be struggling this issue that I just feel grateful, including yourself. And then my other guests who came on my show and then other guests who are coming to my show willing to share because normalizing this difficult conversation is so important. And I think especially sharing about adversity and tools and gifts that is really not talked about because of the stigma. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you for coming to this podcast. Now, would you please um, share your last word with our audience? I would just like to remind everybody that when when someone says you're stronger than you know, the truth is that there's a lot of us that know how strong we are and we're just tired. So if that's you and you feel like you already know how strong you are because you've been through so much, but you're just tired, give yourself the chance to rest. It's okay to slow down. It's okay to take breaks. It's okay to rest because you deserve that kind of compassion. Beautiful. Thank you very much. So Avery, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and then getting to know you. And thank you again for coming to A Gift of Adversity tonight. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for creating this space because like you said, we need to talk about this more to normalize this because then we all feel less alone. Absolutely. Well, that'll do it tonight. Um, A Gift of Adversity. And I will have more guests coming in and I hope to continue this show. But thank you so much for listening to this episode. Have a great night.